Okay, turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. And we are looking at verses 21 to 27. We started this passage last week. We will continue in it this week. And I will tell you now, we will not finish it this week. And it'll be a long time before you hear the end of it. <laughs> because uh, uh, starting next week, I have to preach for two Sundays in a row. And then I'm going on vacation for two Sundays in a row. So for four Sundays in a row, Frank will be teaching the class. And uh, some of you are going, praise the Lord. <laughs> so Anyway, uh, looking here at Matthew 7, uh, we saw that in verses 21 to 27, Jesus takes up the issue of self-deception. Uh, he stated all the principles. He's warned about uh, false prophets. And he says, now in closing, let me warn you about one other thing. Make sure you're not fooling yourself. Are you really a true member of the kingdom of heaven or are you self-deceived? And he warns us about two categories of self-deception. The first is mere verbal profession. And the second is mere intellectual knowledge. Uh, the first is described in verses 21 to 23. And that involves those who say but do not do. And the second is described in verses 24 to 27, involving those who hear but do not do. Uh, he's not speaking to about irreligious people. He's not talking to atheists or agnostics. He's not talking to pagans or heretics or apostates. He is speaking specifically to people who are devotedly religious. They are utterly religious people, but they are self-deluded, thinking they are on the road to heaven when really they are on the broad road to hell. And we have multitudes of deceived people who are in the universal church, uh, who are on the Jesus bandwagon, who think everything is set between them and God. And Jesus says for them, the final judgment is going to be a big surprise. Uh, now, in this passage, he describes two categories. As I said, there are those who are characterized by empty words in verses 21 to 23, and then those who have empty hearts in verses 24 to 27. And the first group makes mere verbal profession. Uh, the second group makes uh, mere intellectual knowledge of the gospel they hear. So let's look again at the empty words. Starting in verse 21. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Notice we saw last week that in verses 21 and 22, they say, Lord, Lord. A Jew might use that term as a title of respect and honor for any political or military or religious leader, including his teachers. A slave would use that term to refer to his master. Uh, it's the word which the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, used to translate God's personal name, Yahweh, uh, in the Greek Old Testament because they considered the name too holy to utter. And so it was a word used to refer to God himself. And since that was the word 
that the new Christians of the first century saw in the uh, Old Testament scriptures for God, it became the Christians' common means of referring to Jesus, as we see throughout the New Testament epistles. And not only that, but these people also acknowledge Jesus himself to be divine because they will say, he says, they will say to me, that is to Jesus on that day, Lord, Lord. And the fact that they have claimed so many outstanding works in his name tells us that they are especially fervent religious workers. And they are specifically those who claim to be Christians. At the time of the great white throne judgment, many professing Believers, if you think about it, will have already been waiting, in a sense, in hell. They have spent centuries in hell awaiting their final judgment, the final declaration. And that seems to add to their sense of fervency as they find themselves standing before Jesus to be judged. After all, they were active and busy with religious work. They were diligent. Uh, and yet they have been in hell and they come out for a final judgment of condemnation that will finalize their eternal torment. So they are desperate as they plead their case to Jesus saying, Lord, Lord, and reciting all the things that they did in his name. But verse 21 says, but not, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Why not? Because not everyone who says that actually did the will of the Father who is in heaven. In Luke 6, 46, Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Uh, so it was not the one who simply claims the Lord, but the one who does the Father's will who will enter heaven. The issue is obedience to the word of God. In verse 23, Jesus says, And then I will declare to them. Uh, we said last week that word declare is the same word that's often translated confess. Uh, it's translated that way in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins. But the meaning goes beyond that. It means to declare plainly, to profess publicly, to declare, to assert. So it's a strong word of affirmation, acknowledgement, and assertion. And Jesus certainly didn't, doesn't have any sins to confess, so he uses this strong word to declare plainly and directly to those who are calling him Lord at the final judgment exactly what his relationship to them is. And so he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What a shock that will be to them. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that God doesn't know who they are. Uh, of course he knows who they are because he knows everything. He's not speaking of an awareness or a mental comprehension of who they are. Or rather, he's speaking of an intimate personal relationship with them. The word know is used in the Bible to speak of an intimate relationship. In fact, in the old King James Version, it was used to speak of a sexual relationship, uh, the most intimate of all personal relationships. In my New American Standard Bible, Genesis 4.1 says, Now the man had relations with his wife Eve. But the marginal note explains that the word is actually new. Uh, he knew his wife. Interestingly, uh, in the New uh, Legacy Standard Bible, uh, the verse is exactly the opposite. The translators went back and translated the word as it actually is, new, and then put a marginal note that says, had relations with. So they just reversed it. Uh, but it doesn't always refer to a sexual relationship. Uh, but it does refer to an intimate, personal relationship. For example, in Amos 3.2, 
New American Standard says that God said to Israel, you only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Again, that's an effort by the translators to make it more understandable to our modern ear because the phrase actually says what the Legacy Standard Bible has translated. You only have I known among all the families of the earth. Uh, in John 10, 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Uh, so to know someone in Scripture was to have a close, intimate, or familial family relationship with someone. And so Jesus says here in Matthew 7 to these people at the final judgment, I never had any kind of close, personal, intimate, familial relationship with you. You may have been hanging around the fringes, claiming to be one of my children, but you weren't. And then he says, depart from me. That is, get out of my presence forever. Uh, why? Because you practice lawlessness. Uh, Jesus' statement here is similar to one recorded in Matthew 25, 41. Uh, where he says that at the final judgment, he will say, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Why is he commanding them to leave his presence? Because instead of doing the will of my Father, instead of living by all the righteous principles I've taught you in this sermon, you always continue to do lawlessness. Do you know what it means to profess Christ? It means absolutely nothing if your life doesn't back it up. Uh, that's what James meant when he said faith without works is dead. Uh, profession alone is valueless. In fact, to invalidly claim Christ is taking the Lord's name in vain in the ultimate sense. The epitome of violating God's name is to claim Christ when he isn't yours. Uh, the British pastor, G. Campbell Morgan, uh, the man who mentored Martin Lloyd-Jones and passed on his pulpit at the, Martin, at the Westminster Chapel in London to him, uh, said this, quote, The blasphemy of the sanctuary is far more awful than the blasphemy of the slum, end quote. Uh, it's a Judas kiss to say, Lord, Lord, and then disobey him. Uh, we must be consumed with doing the will of God. That's why the model prayer in chapter 5, verse 10, says your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That means God's will is to be done through you and me. You say, but Bruce, what about if I don't do it? What if I fail? Well, the prayer goes on to say, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Uh, there's no doubt we're going to fail. But that's when we come for forgiveness. And that itself is part of the righteous standard. The righteous standard Jesus speaks of assumes that we will fail. Uh, but when we fail, we'll be before him confessing our sin. That's why 1 John 1.9 says, if we are those continually confessing our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, the ones being forgiven are the ones confessing. You see, Jesus is not saying, here's the perfect standard, and if you ever fail, you're out. He's saying, here's the perfect standard, and part of that perfect standard is that when you sin, you deal with it by confessing it. That's God's standard. 
And I would go so far as to say that if the truths Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount are not the direction of your life, albeit not the perfection of it, but if it's not the direction of your life, it doesn't matter what confession you've made or whether you've been baptized or attended this church for many years. You're not a Christian. In John 6, 28, <clears throat> the people said to Jesus, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And verse 29 says, Jesus answered them and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Where do you start with the will of God? Believe on Christ. The only thing acceptable to God is righteousness that is a product of repentant faith in Jesus Christ, and that produces good works. And if those are not present, then no matter what you say, it doesn't matter. And so going back to our text here in Matthew 7, paraphrasing what Jesus says in verse 23, he says, not for one single moment have I acknowledged you as my own or known you intimately. You are forever expelled from my presence because you continue to work lawlessness. Now, what makes this so shocking is that he is that the claims they make are so amazing. Look at verse 22. Lord, Lord, we prophesied. We cast out demons. We perform many miracles. Three words, prophecies, exorcisms, and miracles. It sounds like a listing of much of what's claimed in the charismatic movement today, doesn't it? Now, some people ask, well, did they really do those things? Did they really preach and prophesy? Did they really cast out demons? Did they really perform miracles? Well, there are three alternatives to answer that question. Number one, they did by God's power. That's one option. Number two, they did by Satan's power. Or three, they didn't and they just faked it. All three could be true. You say, Bruce, are you saying that even unbelievers might do those things by God's power? Yes. Do you realize that God has worked through unbelievers? If you look back at the Old Testament, you find that God actually has actually worked his work through unbelievers. In fact, for example, in uh, <clears throat> Numbers 23.5, it says, Then the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth. Yet Peter tells us in 2 Peter 2.15 that Balaam loved the wages of unrighteousness. He was an unrighteous, evil prophet for hire, but God used his mouth. There have been times when God has even worked through unregenerate people. In John 11, we're told that Caiaphas, the evil high priest of Israel who was determined to do away with Jesus, made a statement about it being expedient that Jesus die rather than the whole nation. And then John explains in verses 51 and 52 that he did not say this on his own initiative. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one, the children of God who were scattered abroad. So it's a very possible that some of these self-deluded people were actually used by God. 
and did actually speak God's truth. So that's within the realm of possibility. <clears throat> Second, it's possible that they may have done wonderful things and cast out demons and preached under the power of Satan. Satan can express his power. He has certainly demonstrated his power on Job, didn't he? Uh, he brought death and destruction and disease into Job's life. No question about it. Do you remember the story in Acts 19 uh, after Paul was performing various miracles? It says in verse 13, but also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. So they're doing this in Jesus' name. And seven sons of one Sceva, a, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. So these guys are attempting to do this in Jesus' name. Verse 15, And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Don't you just love it when the religious fakers get their comeuppance? <laughs> Jesus even acknowledged that the Jews had this ability when he asked the Pharisees the question in Matthew 12, 27. He said, if I by Belzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? He was recognizing that perhaps they had done such that they could cast out demons. Perhaps they did so through the power of Satan. You say, well, why would Satan cast out Satan? Because he wants those who witness such things by one of his agents to become a follower of his agent. In Deuteronomy 13, 1 to 3, it says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true, so the first thing to notice is that these signs and wonders come true. It says, Concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. So his message is a false message. Verse 3, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or the dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So the Lord enabled that false prophet to accomplish those miracles by the power of Satan in order to test his people's fidelity to him alone. Matthew 24, 24 tells us that in the last days, False Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. So their signs will be so good that if it were possible, even the elect would be misled. Of course, that's not possible, but that's how good their signs are. 2 Thessalonians 2, 8-10, we're told about the Antichrist who will come. And it says that his coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. So Satan can do some amazing things. And then there's the third, there's that whole area of just plain fakery. Um, 
I personally think that's what Janus and Jambrace did when they went up against Moses down in Egypt. They were Pharaoh's magicians and sorcerers. They may have done some of their stuff by demonic powers, but I think much of it was just fakery to fool Pharaoh. Um, and we see the same thing going on in the charismatic movement today. Uh, most of their so-called healings are just getting the crowd worked into a frenzy by faking a few miracles with their own people planted in the audience. And then the rest are just people who are emotionally worked up and experiencing an adrenaline rush that they think is God healing them. And later they discover that it wasn't real. Now, my point is this. <clears throat> At the last judgment, these people are going to say, we preached and we cast out demons and we did miracles. And perhaps some of them were used by God to somehow accomplish his purposes. After all, if God will use Balaam's donkey, he'll use anything. Uh, or perhaps they did it by the dark forces and power of Satan while masquerading as representing Christ. Or perhaps it was just plain old cheap tricks uh, like the hucksters we see today in the charismatic movement. The point isn't how they did it. The point is that they were deceived. They thought it was God, but it wasn't. I think there are a lot of people who are preaching today, claiming to cast out demons, claiming to heal, and a lot of people doing other stuff they believe is by God's power, and it isn't. And a lot of people fall for that and say, oh yes, it must be the Lord, it must be Jesus doing this. And it's nothing but satanic trickery. And sadly, no matter what they say, no matter what they claim, no matter what miracles and wonders they say they've seen, Jesus says, you're not qualified to be in my kingdom. They never came through the narrow gate. What a devastating thing. All they say are empty words. To make a verbal profession is not enough. Well, that brings us to the end of verses 21 to 23. So before we move into verses 24 to 27, where we see that they not only have empty words, but they also have empty hearts, let me just pause and stop and find out if there are any comments or questions at this point. Yes, Norm. A couple comments. First of all, <clears throat> if they were really Christians, they wouldn't have been in hell all that time waiting for the judgment. Right. Yeah. Immediately in the presence of Christ. Right. The other thing I wanted to share is that I don't know about anybody else, but this is a frightening verse. Oh, it's even a terribly frightening verse. Even for Christians, mm -hmm. Because it forces you, or forced me, who's a bit ruminative and scrupulous, to wonder if I'm obeying perfectly. And I'm not obeying perfectly. And I can't obey perfectly. Um, which makes me cling to the wretched man that I am, that Paul said in Romans. Mm -hmm. So I wrestled with this from last week to this week. This is encouraging, but the prior is a very scary verse, even for Christians. I don't think the Lord wants us to be frightened of this verse, but it does strike that fear. And those are my comments. I'll stop rambling. <laughs> <laughs> you're not rambling. Uh, I think that what you're expressing is what every true believer should feel. We should examine ourselves to make certain that we are in the faith uh, and that we 
we should be concerned. I've always said that this passage, and uh, and for me, the one in James, let not many of you be teachers, knowing that we incur a stricter judgment. Those are the most frightening verses. In, these and that are the most frightening verses in Scripture to me. Uh, and Frank just agreed for him. <laughs> I, I pray that God, if you could keep me from teaching so I don't make a mistake, get in the way and hurt you, then do it. Yeah. I mean, I love teaching, but that, that verse scares the daylights out of me. Yeah. And just the fact that it says, he who does the will of my Father, and we know, we walk right here in this earth, we're doing things to be obedient, but there's some things where we're like, mm -hmm. honestly, Yeah. You know, that's one of the great things about the fact that God gave us so many great examples in Scripture uh, that we can look back and go, David. <laughs> David. An adulterer and a murderer. And yet he's described as a man after God's own heart. Wow. You know, Lot. Lot. Yeah. Think of Lot. You know, there's nothing in the Old Testament that would ever indicate to you that Lot was a true believer, yet you get to Hebrews 11, and there he is among the faithful. So, there's hope. Yes. Um, since these people had been in hell, and now they're talking to the Lord, didn't they know they'd been in hell? I mean, yes, they, they do, but I think they're they're just desperately hoping. Oh, so for you think they that didn't know they, were they did, but they're desperately hoping that he will change his mind. Well, that's why I said last week those words, "Lord, Lord," it's a it's a cry of desperation. It's a cry of desperation. Do you think these people, in your opinion, are they so busy doing things that they don't take time to study God's word? Because it seems like if you're studying and you're seeking, like Proverbs says, you know, if you seek, yeah, you've got to dig dig in. I mean, it's not going to happen just because right. you keep doing and doing and doing. Right. It doesn't matter how many songs you listen to. No. Unless you connect with the Word of God. Right. You're, you're, you're teaching my lesson ahead of time. I know. <laughs> you're doing well. Are we done? <laughs> Charlie. I was just thinking, when I first saw the word lawlessness, you know, I was thinking of a specific thing like, you know, BLM, uh, you know, riots and stuff like that. But... In reality, it's more than that, right? Any sin. It's God's law. It's any and sin. Yes, right? it's sin. Any yeah, sin. any sin. Yeah. Disobedience. I saw another hand somewhere else. Yes, Mark. It was just, uh, yeah, the, the, the severity of uh, When they said uh, you were desperate, he said, Lord, Lord. Um, I thought I focused on the second present because you, you practice. In other words, it, it intimated to me it was a, a lack of. of uh, of the fact that they practice sin, they practice lawlessness. They continually sin. They're continually yeah, it's, sinning. It's a continual matter. But even though they did the good works, they continued in their sins. Yeah, the, their action, their their words were, their their actions were just meaningless because they had not submitted their hearts truth, truly to Him. Well, let's look at verses 24 to 27. Start looking at verses 24 to 27. It says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. 
Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Here in West Florida, with our regular interactions with hurricanes, uh, we're aware of the need for a well-constructed home, aren't we? Uh, you need a roof that's built to the strongest building codes, or else it's probably going to blow off on a direct hit from anything stronger than a Cat 2 hurricane. And you need windows or coverings for your windows that will hold up to the damaging objects that fly around in a hurricane. And if you live too close to the Gulf or in a flood zone, you may end up dealing with flooding from a tidal surge. Uh, and if that's not enough of concern for us, if you live in certain areas, you face the concern of sinkholes uh, during times of either too much rain or too little rain. Sinkholes occur and they often take homes into the ground with them. And so we can identify to some degree with the illustration that Jesus gave his listeners that day in Galilee. Now, I recognize that we don't have any rock upon which to build our foundations like the wise man in Jesus' illustration. Uh, but we build our homes on reinforced foundations made of concrete with footers made of concrete and rebar. And like Jesus' listeners, we face the possibility of wind and flooding destroying our homes. So we have to plan for such. We need to be like the wise man. I know from because, that because of my law enforcement experience with assisting flooding victims in various neighborhoods that when Marsha and I were looking for a home over 31 years ago, uh, I determined that we would not buy a home that was located in a flood or evacuation zone um, and that I would not buy in certain areas known for their propensity for sinkholes. And that's why we purchased our home at a roughly 50 to 60 feet of elevation with excellent drainage in a neighborhood that at the time we bought there, there had never been, in over the 30 years that subdivision had lived, been there, there had never been a sinkhole. And I'm happy to say that although it's been there now over 30, 60 years, there's still no sinkholes in the area. <laughs> and, and <laughs> so. Now in this uh, next portion of this passage, Jesus presents an illustration that contrasts two men, each of whom builds a house. One thinks nothing about the foundation of his home and builds it on the sand. He's called a foolish man in verse 26. Uh, the Greek word is moros, from which we get our word moron. Uh, the other man seeks to be sure that the foundation of his home is built on solid rock. He is, he's called a wise man in verse 24. And so we have what seems to be a very simple story of two men building houses, and one is wise and one is foolish. In fact, this is a powerful commentary on people who have a head knowledge of God's way of entering the kingdom, but an empty heart. You'll notice that he says, both in verse 24 and verse 26, everyone who hears. Uh, those, these are the people who hear. They hear the message. They listen. They understand it. But in verse 24, the wise ones act upon his message. But the fools, in verse 26, do not. Now, in the first illustration that Jesus gave in verses 21 to 23, we saw a contrast between those who give a verbal assent to the truth, and they did a lot of things in Jesus' name, but he says they don't do the will of his Father who is in heaven. Uh, their profession is just empty words. 
but now we come to the second group, and these are the people who are deceived into thinking they're Christians because they know so much about Christianity. They have a lot of intellectual knowledge. They can recite Bible verses and debate theology, but their hearts are unchanged. And again, Jesus is reminding us that God's standard of righteousness is required for entering the kingdom of God. And unless your life is built on that standard, no matter what it looks like, no matter what you know in your head, no matter how feverishly you build your house of spiritual activity, when the flood comes, you're going to get washed away if all you have is a head knowledge. Now, the Jews had developed a system of works righteousness, a humanly devised system of self-stimulated fleshly efforts that fell far short of God's standard. And so God came along and offered them true righteousness. But before they could receive the true righteousness, they had to recognize the bankruptcy of their own system and come to God with a beatitude mentality. Jesus has been tearing down their paper palace piece by piece uh, until the time that we finally get to chapter 7. He's utterly destroyed, destroyed their whole religious security. And then he forces them to make a choice in verses 13 and 14, you'll remember. And he tells them it won't be an easy choice because these false prophets are going to come along to deceive them and they will even deceive themselves. And so the contrast of the two builders in verses 24 to 27 is a contrast between two people who hear. Some hear and obey and some hear and disobey. These are all people who profess to know God, who think they're in the kingdom, who think that they are Christians. Verse 24 begins, Therefore everyone who hears these words of mine. Verse 26 begins, Everyone who hears these words of mine. In either case, you have people who are hearing the message of Christ. They're listening to the word of God. And you'll note that also at the end of verse 24, it says that the man built his house. And at the end of verse 26, the man built his house. They listen and they are involved in certain spiritual activity. They both belong to the visible body of believers. Listen to that. They both belong to the visible body of believers. Perhaps they both read scripture and attend church. They're both busy forming some kind of spiritual value system, building up some kind of edifice of spiritual activity. But there's a tremendous difference. One is wise and one is a fool because one builds on rock and the other builds on sand. And may I add, the foundation's invisible. Once the edifice is up, you can't see the foundation anymore. And so it becomes difficult to tell. And the true believers can be deceived into believing that they are, uh, uh, and the false believers can be deceived into believing they're true believers just like these, these self-deceived people here. Now let me add a general truth. What Jesus is saying here is very simple. Lots of people hear Christ's teaching, but the only ones who will enter the kingdom are those who do what Jesus commands. That's the bottom line. And there are many people who hear the truth, but if you examine their life and it's all just 
hearing and not doing. If you, if you examine your life, it's just hearing. Come and listen to Bruce, listen to Steve, listen to Joe, and you go away and there's no obedience. Don't deceive yourself into thinking you're a Christian. In fact, Jesus says that only the storm is going to reveal the truth when we find out who are the wise and who are the fools. The implication is that even those who disobey believe that they belong to Christ and make a convincing profession of faith in him. They hear God's word, they recognize that it's God's word, but wrongly believe that simply knowing and recognizing it are enough to please God and guarantee them a place in the kingdom. But they're no different than those who say, Lord, Lord, and do amazing religious works, but actually practice lawlessness. And it's only when the storm of persecution comes that you find out who the real believers are. That's why, as I, I've said many times, we have those who come to Lakeside every week and sit and listen and acknowledge that what they hear is the truth, but the reality is that they have empty hearts. They have not been converted. But as we see the growing storm of persecution coming in our country toward uh, and against evangelical Christians, particularly as it relates to the society's demand that churches accept homosexuality and abortion as acceptable, uh, it will become common that anyone who holds uh, biblical views on those matters are going to be considered pariahs in the society on the level with the KKK or the Nazis. Uh, and when that happens, you will see people who profess to be Christians suddenly be unwilling to take the heat from their friends and family and society and the government about these matters, and they will walk away from the faith. Uh, they will go out from us because they really are not of us. Uh, it's the storm of persecution that reveals who are the true followers of Christ who will enter his kingdom. Now, there are several similarities between these guys here, and I want you to take note of them. First of all, both individuals build a house. Uh, they have both heard the gospel. They both know the way of salvation. They're both involved in spiritual activity. They're both involved in something that has to do with the kingdom of God. Second, it's apparent that they both build their house, that is, their spiritual lives, in the same area or location because the same storm hits both houses. What's the point? It's that true believers and false believers are invariably living side by side. They're on the same block. They attend the same church. They go to the same Bible studies. They're so similar in terms of the building that they build that they're indistinguishable to most people. Third, they apparently build it in the same way. Because the Lord says the only difference is the foundation. Uh, he doesn't imply that the house itself is any different. Uh, both people build a house. They build it the same way. They build it uh, in the same place. They build it in the same way. Uh, in other words, they carry a Bible in their notebook. They go through certain prayers. They do certain activities. And maybe they give some money to the Lord. So apparently they build the same kind of house. From all appearances, they, their lives look very similar. From all outward appearances, they're both religious, theologically orthodox, moral, serve in the church, supported financially, good citizens of their community. And really, it all looks very much the same until you come to the real crux of the matter. 
And that's the foundation, which, as I said, is very often not visible once the house is built. Only an honest and careful soul-searching self-evaluation can reveal the truth. And that brings us to the differences between the two. The difference between the two builders and the two houses they built are not noticeable from the outside, as we said. But they are immeasurably more important than the similarities. The key to understand that one does act upon God's word, that's a life of obedience, and the other one does not act upon his word, that's a life of disobedience. One builds using the divine specifications, the other uses his own. By far the greatest difference between the two specifications that these builders use and the way they build is the foundation that they used. Jesus says, the wise man built his house upon what? Rock. The, whereas the foolish man built his house upon the sand. One builder, the wise man, builds on the rock. Verse 24. That is this word, Petra. Uh, it means rock, but not just like a rock or stone laying on the side of the road. Uh, that it, it means bedrock or a massive rock formation. Uh, the word which means stone is Petras, uh, which is the name Jesus gave to Simon, Simon Peter, Petras. Uh, they're obviously linguistically connected, but they are different words with different meanings. And in this context, since the man is building his house on this rock, it is referring to bedrock, uh, a large outcropping of solid, stable, immovable rock. Uh, some of you may have been to the fortress city known as Petra. Anybody in here been to Petra in Jordan? Uh, uh, Petra was carved out of the rock in the 4th century BC by the Nabataeans. Uh, there's only a small corridor through the rock cliff to get to the city, and the city itself was carved out of the rock. Uh, the other builder, though, the foolish man, builds on the sand, verse 26. And the root form of this word is amas. Uh, it simply means sand, like sand on the seashore. Uh, in fact, it's used five times in Scripture, and many times it's sand on the seashore. Uh, th those of us who are native Floridians long ago learned that it isn't wise to build your house on the seashore where the hurricanes come and wash away all the sand and your house collapses. Uh, however, that hasn't stopped the realtors from selling that sand lots <laughs> to the Yankees from up north who build their houses there and hope their flood insurance will cover them when it all falls down. Uh, so a wise man, so a man who is wise uh, and builds on the rock bed, but a man who's a fool to build on the shifting sands of the seashore or desert. He's a fool if he does that. But And remember back in verses 15 to 20, there, there's some realtors who are selling lots in that sand. Uh, they're the false prophets who set up a real estate office and sell sand lots. Um, but a man is a fool to build on sand because when the storm comes... It undermines the sand, verse 27, the house falls. And, and it won't uh, just topple over. Jesus says, great was its fall. In other words, it's going to fall flat and be totally destroyed. And when the house is built on the foundation of solid rock, the storm can come and it's not going to fall. I remember that when I was a student at USF back in the early 70s, 
the university decided to build a new library. They really needed it. The old one was far too small for a university. So they started building a new six-story uh, library with a basement, something you don't often see in Florida. Uh, well, you may not realize it, but the ground surface around the USF campus is very sandy. I mean, it was originally a pasture for Brahma bulls. Uh, and uh, underneath is a honeycomb of limestone. Uh, consequently, just because there's rock doesn't down there doesn't mean it's, sol it's solid bedrock like they have in places up north in the mountains where granite and quartz rock uh, is in abundance. Uh, limestone is much softer and at times it's hollowed out like bubbles in the rock. It's almost like honeycomb. And uh, so in order to build that new library, the construction company brought in a gigantic pile driver. And they used that to pound huge pilings down into the ground so that they went far down into that limestone so that the building would be supported. And for month after month after month, we sat in class all day long. You heard the sound of that pound pile driver pounding those pilings into the ground. And it was so irritating. It was almost like the constant drip of Chinese water torture, uh, only louder. Uh, but when they were finally done, they had a solid, sure foundation for the library. Uh, it doesn't matter how much rain comes or if too little rain comes. They don't have to worry about sinkhole damage or sandy soil around that building collapsing because they have a solid foundation. Uh, now, the Pharisees were the kind of people who came along and they built their own foundation. They had this complex, involved set of religious traditions that they regarded as having great value toward, before God. But all those traditions were external, superficial, and unstable. Uh, they had no regard for spirituality of soul. They had no regard for purity of heart. They had no regard for integrity of behavior. They had no regard for obedience to God, and they were building their big spiritual structure on sand. Sure, they prayed. Of course, they fasted. They gave alms to the poor but only as a public show to parade their supposed piosity and to try to enhance their reputation with others. They had a religion of externals, and that is shifting sand, composed entirely of the opinions, speculations, and standards of men. And bringing this up to our present time, here's what Arthur Pink said about our modern-day professing believers who are like them. He writes this, quote, They bring their bodies to the house of prayer, but not their souls. They worship with their mouths, but not in spirit and, and in truth. They are sticklers for immersion or early morning communion, yet take no thought about keeping their hearts with all diligence. They boast of their orthodoxy, but disregard the precepts of Christ. Multitudes of professing Christians abstain from external acts of violence, yet hesitate not to rob their neighbors of a good name by spreading evil reports against them. They contribute regularly to the pastor's salary but shrink not from misrepresenting their goods and cheating their customers, persuading themselves that business is business. They have more regard for the laws of man than for those of God, for his fear is not before their eyes." End quote. That's so true, isn't it? And we need to examine our own hearts to make sure that we're not one of those like them. Now the question, well, 
the question comes to mind here, what is the rock? But I'm looking at a clock and I'm thinking this is a great place to stop and pick up in another month when I come back. Any, uh, any comments or questions on this section before we go? Yes. That's right. The Lord will always accomplish through his word what he intends to accomplish. It's not going to return void in accomplishing what he intends to accomplish. Right. And that's what we have to remember. And also one other thing, the death of conversion, when people accept mm -hmm. Christ, mm -hmm. but yet they're confessing, and, they, and only Christ would know whether they're doing it. That is true. That is true. That is true. I mean, face it, you know, the thief on the cross, right. he certainly didn't do any good works. He couldn't have done anything except genuine faith. That's all he had. And as, as uh, Alistair Begg says, when he got to heaven, and they say, what are you here for? He says, the man on the middle cross said I could come. <laughs> Okay. Anything else? Part of what the word does, though, is sometimes God uses his word to harden hearts. Yes. So it says that the word of God doesn't come back void. Many times God uses his word to harden the hearts of the people you're talking to for his own purposes. So I'm with you. With what I do, I always share the word of God. Many reject it, some accept it. But I have to leave in God's hands to do what he's going to do. And his purposes will be beyond the shadow of a doubt, will be fulfilled. But as a teacher, you always use God's word, right? Because mm -hmm. that's what bears fruit, is mm -hmm. my understanding. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it will bear fruit, always. Yeah. Yes. Uh, a, a quote from Mike Shaw, he said, How dare we say there, but by the grace of God, go we. And I've thought about that for a long time, and that's true, there, but by the grace of God, I wasn't saying. But what he means is, how dare we say that and not go share the gospel with them. And during evangelism, it's close. Steve always said, if they reject the gospel, you always tell them that they will go into eternal punishment to uh, warn them of hell. And uh, uh, when God saved me and opened my eyes, I thought I was saved. And I was lost. I was scared of hell. And I have a buddy up in New England, and uh, someone warned him of hell, and he said, it worked for me. <laughs> when he was saved, he realized there was an eternal hell. He didn't want to go there. When he lives a life that uh, is not just a hero only, you know. Some people say he's a fire escape Christian. Well, aren't we all, you know? Okay. Anything else? Frank, close us with prayer. Mm -hmm.